Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. 
Hey there, friends. Welcome back. Welcome to the show. This is episode number 104. And this month, we are featuring my conversation with the incredible George Porter Jr. Yes, the one and only New Orleans bass player and one of the original founding members of The Meters, one of the great, great instrumental groups of all time. One of the great groups of all time, let's face it. Back in the 60s, when these guys were first recording and prolifically putting out records, really the only other band doing remotely what they were doing was Booker T and the MGs in Memphis. Uh, these guys were working out of New Orleans. And, you know, coming out of like basically cover bands, I found really interesting to, to find out. And uh, they were playing a bunch of soul and R&B and New Orleans standards in various bands, which you'll hear about. And the meters kind of came together as a, as a cover band, really. And they started playing and doing sessions for the incredible Alan Toussaint, who was a producer and artist. He died a couple of years ago and was a, yeah, a terrific artist in his own right, but he was also a, a noted producer and arranger. A lot of people know him as the guy that arranged all the great horn parts for the band, but he also produced all kinds of classic New Orleans R&B and soul sides back in the 60s and 70s. And George was a big part of his sound. They were The meters became like Toussaint's house band and would go and do sessions for him all the time. And during those sessions, the meters were born. The, the engineer just sort of rolled tape and apparently Toussaint stayed out of the way and these guys just laid down these tunes which are deceptively simple. Like everyone kind of thinks they can play Sissy Strut, but they can't. They don't really know how it goes. And it's just one of those tunes. It's one of those grooves and their songs are just chock full of these deceptively simple grooves which are so unique and so heavy. And sound amazing to this day. I love them. The drums are all sort of hard panned off to the right, usually. And George Porter on the bass, he's also on the right. It's funny. It's weird how these, I didn't really notice until I listened with headphones, but that's how those records are sort of laid out. And I'm guessing that has to do with the fact that they, that they were just recording live, probably to a three or four track. And instruments were just getting shoved off to one side or the other in a stereo mix. Anyway, they put out a bunch of records starting in 1969, The Meters. If you don't know any of these records, you got to go check them out. Then there's followed by Look A Pie Pie, Stratton, Cabbage Alley, Fire on the Bayou. So many great records. Some of them are vocal songs, some are not. So the original Meters lineup was George on bass, Zigaboo Modaliste on drums, Art Neville on keys. He sadly passed away a couple of years ago. That was a huge loss to the New Orleans community. Leo Nocentelli on guitar. Eventually, Cyril Neville joined. I don't, I don't know if he officially joined or if he was just there a lot, but he was sort of in the band. And other people came and went, but that was the core band that made all those great records uh, through the 60s and mostly the 70s, really. And so through the Alan Toussaint connection, they played on some amazing records, too, for Dr. John. They played on Paul McCartney record. They played on that killer Robert Palmer record, Sneak and Sally Through the Alley. Do you guys know that one? That's it monster record. It's got some Little Feet people and some Meters people all mixed together, which is cool. The Meters kind of disintegrated in 79 or 80, and George went on to play with the Neville Brothers. Uh, he did some stuff with Keith Richards, and he started his own bands, and he's been playing around New Orleans for decades, and you can still see him. I saw him there a couple of times. And so he had the George Porter Trio, or I think it was called the Porter Trio at some point, 
and he's got his most recent band, which is called The Running Partners. And The Running Partners just put together a new record, which we talked about at the beginning of this interview, because we actually did this a couple of months ago when he was just sort of wrapping up the recording of that. And it's called Crying for Hope. So make sure you check out all the meter stuff, all the George Porter trio, and all the running partner records. So I sort of met George about 10 years ago. Well, I did meet him, but it was very fleeting. It was at the Calgary Folk Festival, and he was up there playing with... I can't remember what the band was actually called. It was, I think it was called the New Orleans All-Stars or something like that. And the rumor had <laughs> it was that he was up playing with that band and he broke a string on his bass. And the word on the street was that that string had been on that bass since the 80s or something. And he didn't want a new string for obvious reasons, like partly because it would feel weird, I guess, and partly because it would sound weird. And so he got a guy from the festival to drive around to the vintage guitar stores in Calgary and find a bass from the 70s that had strings from the 70s on it. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that's what I heard going around the festival. Uh, and when I met him in the van, I didn't ask him about that. But that was what I heard happened. And that's cool. And I should have asked him here today, but I also forgot to bring that up. Anyway, that was my experience running into George Porter Jr. at the Calgary Folk Festival. Now, we all know that one of these days, live music is going to come back. It'll be back in full force in New Orleans, of course. And if you ever find yourself down that way, you should check out George and one of his many projects. You can find out information on all the stuff that he's up to at georgeporterjr.com. That's georgeporterjr.com. And I should point out that his new album, Running Partners, Crying for Hope, is technically listed if you're looking for it in Spotify or Amazon Music or Apple Music or whatever it's George Porter Jr and Runnin' Partners and that's Runnin' with the apostrophe instead of the G and Partners is with a D P A R D N E R S so it's George Porter Jr and Runnin' Partners crying for hope go find it so before we get going here I would just like to thank a few people that have kicked in over the last few weeks since the last couple of episodes came out with Peter Rowan they have contributed either by signing up to the Patreon account or with a one-time donation. Those people are Glenn Jackson, George Wells, Gene Solomon, Leonard Swanson, Mike Dolphin, and Jeff Lang over in Australia. Do you guys know Jeff Lang? He's a monster guitar player. And I met him like 20-some-odd years ago. He came to Vancouver and opened for my hippie rock band, I guess, at the time. And we ended up jamming and having a great old time. And Jeff came a lot to Canada. He's a monster player. Go check him out. Anyway, thank you so much to all those people. I couldn't do this show without the support, and I greatly appreciate all of it. Thank you. All right, so let's get on with the show. This is my conversation with the incredible George Porter Jr. Well, thanks so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate you um, taking the time. It's been, um, I've been hoping to get you on this show for a while, actually. And uh, man, you've just made so much great music through your life. I, I, I hoped we could sort of dive in and talk about a bunch of it. Sure enough. Looks like you got a cool little studio set up in your house there. What? Tell me what you're up to over there. Oh, uh, well, um, we've been recording. Uh, I just completed the, um, the running part in um, uh, upcoming um uh, CD. Um, the title is going to be "Crying for Hope." Okay. And, and we just released uh, 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 on my birthday, on my seventy third birthday, the day after Christmas, um, the single um, "Crying for Hope." But um, you know, in the house here, I have um, you know, I'm using a, a, a i iMac computer. I'm running Pro Tools, um, the, the, the the newest newest version Pro Tools. Yeah. 
and uh, we've been recording um, in in the cloud. Well, you know, with my keyboardist um, Mike Limbler and and uh, Chris Atkins, uh, guitarist and Terrence Houston, in their own studios. You know, so we've you know we've been getting the work done. Uh, I was really pleased with the fact. Um, that we was able, that technology had been around for a while, but Mike yeah. and I have been having it for over two years, but we never used it. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, when this when nineteen came along, we just decided. You know, I, I said, man, why don't we try using this 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 uh, this program that we never <laughs> we never ever used? You know, or it's part of a program that we the cloud part. Yeah. You know. And he said, "Okay, give me a day. Let me do the let me do the homework, and then I'll get back to you." And you know, he got back to me the next day, and we started uploading music, and um, and we completed the record. About it's been about four weeks now. So, are you actually using that Pro Tools cloud? Is that the cloud you're talking about? Yes. Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay, I could I could actually never really get that working properly. So well, you know, it was it had a lot to do with uh, um. It's it. We when we first started at the sessions, both of us was running uh, uh, two thousand something, yeah, and uh, uh, and it didn't work really well with that until we up we we did a did the upgrade and we upgraded to the the latest Pro Tools that that was out. Now, I can't remember which is seventeen uh, or something not, or eleven. I believe it's eleven two thousand eleven. Okay, and um. And at that, at that, that's when it started working. And, you know, we oh, had, okay. had, no, Interesting. had no trouble at all with, uh, with that outfit. Well, that's good to know. It might be a thing where like both people have to have the same version. I'd never even really thought I about think, that. I think, I, th I think that might have a lot to do with it because, you know, uh, um, and we may, may say that because uh, uh, Chris Atkins, had, uh, Mike and I started Doing the projects, great. Well, you know, because he he's kind of like my band leader. I I, mm -hmm. I always tell everybody that Mike Limble is my band leader, my music director, and uh and 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 Mike and I got on the same page, or you know, on the same day, and we started working. Then by the time we invited Chris to come to come work on the guitar parts, um, mm -hmm. you know, Chris has not gotten to that newest version. And um and, he, and actually he had to he had to go up two steps. Oh, okay. Because he was he was like two 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 steps down. And that's probably that's got, probably the thing then. Yeah, once he got up to once we were all three of on the same on the same system, you know, then it worked. We, and we worked and had no problems and and no no shutdowns. I believe. Okay. And also, when COVID first happened, uh, I think they had to the uh, Pro Tools had to do some work. On it, yeah. and because you know everybody ran to that format, you know, <laughs> yeah, and was probably I, I probably crashing their system, you know. And they, by the time they got, it took them about three or four days, and you know, before you know, before Mike told me, say, I think Pro Tools fine because Mike was he was conversing back and forth with um, yeah, with Avid, you know, yeah, you know, you know, and it, it got it all, it got all worked out. It's worked out, oh, and I'm cool. really, I'm, I'm really pleased with the final, the final product because came out really good. I right think on. it's a, I think it's my best record to date. <laughs> so before we talk about some of the history stuff, I'm going to guess that for you this year, like the last 12 months have been like the least amount of 
live work you've done probably since the early 60s. I don't know if I'm right about that. I don't know if you ever took a like a bit of a, a break or a time off from touring or from gigging, but that would be my guess. Like, how's that been for you as an adjustment? And how are you liking the whole like the online thing as opposed to playing live? I, I believe I believe, you know, I, I kind of got into the recording aspect of, of, of music. You know, way back in in the, in the early seventies, um, yeah. what what Cosmo Metastasis was kind of pretty much uh, was a, a role model for me. Him and Roberta, I would I would go over to C Saint Studios and just hang out with them, you know, and, and yeah. watch how that was that that process was done, and you know, and how to get how to get information on the tape, and also how to get it off the tape, you know. So I was always intrigued with that. So <clears throat> when when COVID came down the line. And uh, we all we got stuck at home. I had I had I had no problems with you know wanting to come up in here and just hang out in the studio and just you know get back into the the, the working stages of of the whole system, the studio idea. Because you know um, being on the road as much as we were, you know I learned things up on, on in, the, in the in the program and go out on the road. And come back home a month and a half later, forgot <laughs> yeah. what I learned, you know. So <laughs> totally. So so being 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 able to be with the with the program for you know for eight months, it was it's really good. Now as mm-hmm. to see, I've been I've, I've kind of like I said, we finished the session about uh, about three four weeks ago. So and so I kind of walked away from the studio and been looking at television, lots of television. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so. Uh, um, probably, hopefully next week I'll I'll go back I'll come back up here, and um, and start working on the Porter Trios record, you know, which is okay. you know which is basically recorded. Just needed to you know to, to tweak a few things. Me um, find a comfortable vocal, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a vocal track that I can live with, you know, and that's usually the hardest part of the, of the of the recording thing for me is just finding a vocal track. That um, that I could sing and play at the same time because you right. know we we do the music and I put down these great bass lines and then come put the vocal down and then listen to it and say oh I can't say I can't play both of those <laughs> so then I had to go back and simplify either the vocal track or to simplify right. the bass line you know and are you doing all the engineering yourself or do you have somebody that comes over and does that for you. No, here at home I'm doing all my engineering. Yes, there's, I'm, wow. there's Michael is the only Michael Lemler is the only person that's been in this room um, um, since the um, um, since COVID, and uh, and that was that was because um, the the the, the iMac back behind me is a, is the new the new the new hard boy on the block. Okay, and uh, and I got that one and um, and and we really upgraded. So I took all the system off of the old iMac and put it over onto this one. And oh, yeah. again, Mike is the tech. So he, so I would say, but he's, but no one else has been um, in bed. My, oh, my, me, my granddaughter, my daughter's been here, but not up here. Yeah. This space up here belongs to me. <laughs> Have you done any gigging at all? Like, has there been any like online shows or? or like any outdoor shows around New Orleans that you've been involved in, or have you just like stayed home and not done anything like that? We've done a trio gig, two, two of those, um, like the, it was the Maple Leaf and Exile. Oh, uh, you played the Maple Leaf? Yeah, yeah, but it was, but we uh, actually played at the, at a, um, the, the club down down the road from them um, called um, Southport. Okay. Southport Music Hall. Mm-hmm. On, on on Southport's porch, they have a a big porch and a, a nice big parking lot. Okay, 
So, um, you know, and it, I think it was limited to, my, I think, maybe 50 people. Oh, it was 100. There were 100 people. But they had they had to spread it out really well. The first time we played, it was to open air. The second time, they had built a tent because it got cold. Okay. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but, you know, um, my girlfriend uh, um, told him that, just said, no, uh, Paul is not playing inside anywhere. You know, and a tent is inside. So, you know, so we they they took the back off the tent behind us and that side yeah. panel off. So there was so we had fresh air running through um to us. And it wasn't that cold, but you know, um it was cold, but it wasn't that cold cold enough to say, well, you know, yeah, maybe I maybe I shouldn't play this gig. Right. Uh we I did a gig with uh with the running partners um uh, um for my birthday, December twenty-sixth. Uh um but that was inside, and there was nobody, you know, no one present. It was just a, it was just us and the, um, and the video people. And yeah. That that was a live stream. Yeah. So you've and, done a, uh, you've done a few things. I've done I've done I may, I maybe five or six, and I played yeah. a I played a wedding, played a Did wedding you? out in the in the courtyard of a, a, a of a, um of the the Ace Hotel, um. Uh, um, the day after my birthday, the twenty seventh, you know, uh, it was it was pretty it was pretty cool. It was fun, you know. It's just a trio to ten people, you know. Okay. Wow, <laughs> and, exclusive and, gig, and, man. Yeah, man, and it was really good, very well paid. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. it was real nice, you know. So tell me the current lineup of of your trio. Is that like Russell Batiste and those guys? No, or is this- no, no. The, the 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 Porter trio is basically. And how it came about was when the guitarist for the Running Partners, Brent Anderson, left the band three years ago, to almost three and a half years ago. And when he left the band, I kind of like you know uh, we had we had started doing a Monday night thing up at the Maple Leaf with just yeah. the three of us before Brent left the band. Okay. And uh, um, I just said, well, you know, let's just put all our energies into this project. You know, let's, let's just play as a trio for a while. And we did for almost a year, almost a year that we just played as a trio. But then the booking agency, uh, um, you know, was calling me up saying, man, I got gigs for running parties. You need to, you know, you need to put this together, you know. Yeah. So um, Chris Atkins, um, you know, came across the, uh, the desk. Uh, Leslie Smith actually told me about Chris. And, um, you know, so we contacted Chris and he said, man, I would love to do this gig, man, you know. So I sent in the material and uh, and we had no rehearsals. We, the very first gig was his rehearsal. Yeah. And he came, he, he came prepared, really prepared. Really? Nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so the uh, running part of this band today, as of today, uh, uh, consists of uh, Michael Limler on keyboards, Terrence Houston on drums. And Chris Atkins on guitar. And have you played with all those guys for a long time? M- Michael like Michael Limler has been in the band for pretty close to twenty five years. Okay, so I've seen you with these with those guys. Well, yeah, and Terrence Houston was in the band for at least ten years now. Ten years now. Okay. Uh, uh, and so you know, it was almost a natural uh, involvement for um, from being from running partners to the trio because the Porter trio was Michael Limler, Terrence Houston, and myself. Okay. And 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 basically the uh we was we were kinda acting, you know, acting out musically, uh um as a as a pretty much as a jam band, you know, with no no um no song list to start out with. We would just start we would start the gig musically and cool. Two and a half hours later we would be saying, okay. <laughs> 
take a know? break. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so we started, we started looking at, I started, well, I was, I had always made a habit of listening to the second set of gigs on my way home. And uh, and I I called Michael up one morning, like maybe a, maybe a Tuesday afternoon or something like that. I said, "Man, I've been listening to these gigs, bro. We we need to come up in the studio and record some of this stuff, <laughs> you know." So that's what we did. We came in, started recording with a plan, or 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 just totally like off the cuff. Well, <clears throat> some off the cuff, but you know, with some of the ideas that was happening on those Monday nights. Okay. We just came in the studio and and then kind of uh, took that's that, a cool way to do it. That twelve minute jam and and turned it into you know maybe a five to six minute uh, piece of music you know. Right. Right. Uh, uh, um. So we 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 did that. We got about nineteen songs did done. Wicked. And and then you know like I said the um, booking agents was really you know said man running partners I'm got I got gigs we need to put y'all out on the road so we left the studio, went back on the road. And, yeah. you know, then we was out for almost a year and then um, COVID came along and, okay, so now now we're out of work. <laughs> not, yeah, want, not wanting to work, actually, you know, because it was kind of crazy. And, uh, um, and you know, and so that's when I, 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 um, I told, I, I called up Michael and I said, man, let's finish this running part of this record and add Chris to the mix. So you took the tracks that you'd done as a as a trio. Correct. No, 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 no. We took we took the original recordings that we had done of Running Partners like five years ago with oh, Brent, wow, okay. with, with Brent Anderson on guitar that was never released. Yeah, they just was sitting in the can over here, and um, we revi- we revisited those twenty some odd tracks. Oh wow! And, cool. and then and then picked out of those twenty some tracks, we did. I think we did. Six, maybe seven songs that was originally recorded originally with Brent Anderson, and then while that process was going on, I just started writing some new stuff, you know. Right. And, on. and, and so then there were five more additional songs, or maybe six more additional songs, and we broke it down to me twelve songs. Okay. And so pre-COVID, where were you guys record? Like, do you have a favorite spot in New Orleans to record, or are there a ton of options, or what's the what's the recording scene like there now? It's my home. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, you know, I have, I have uh, um, I, you know, I, my, it's a functional, it's a very, it's a very functional 32 channel. Well, it's probably, I have unlimited channels because I, I'm using the newest Pro Tools. Um, and my, my, my desk is a, is a Personas 32 channel desk. But in, in the room, in the room here, we never ever 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 use more than I think we use ten tracks on the drums. Okay. Uh, four, um, fourteen, uh, four, four tracks on keyboard and keyboard world. So as uh, so it's fourteen, not fourteen, but four. So in fourteen inputs and two baseline inputs, it's never used sixteen more than sixteen at a time. Yeah, and you we, don't need that. And, and we never and we never record guitar with the rest of the band. Because you know keyboards and bass could go indirect, and and, uh, and and so there's there's no bleed on the drums. Right, right. Uh, uh, but I noticed um, I noticed when it was we was um, fine tuning some of the overheads that you can hear my strings 
Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Terrence is over here in, in, in some of his <laughs> some of his quieter parts. So it's all know, right, man. Yeah, so you know, <laughs> so we have a guy named Tracy Freeman, man, who's who's really good at isolating things like that yeah, yeah. and <laughs> cutting them out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's good, you know. And and, and like I say, um, Mike Michael is Michael is excellent at um at being a part of that um that that technical world of of. Of, you know, putting stuff in time. Because, like, when I write these songs, I, I don't write them to a click track. I just write off of my how I'm feeling at the time. Some of them, some of them is, like, stuff I, I take off of. A, I, I, I was downstairs a couple of times and, and just, and just used my iPhone, recorded the track, and then brought that up to the studio and dropped it in the, dropped it in the Pro Tools. And then yeah, fo- man. Then forwarded it to Michael, and then Michael would grid it and you know, and, and and put it all, piece it all together, and then he'll send it back to me and say, "Okay, here's all the parts that you did. How you want oh, them? Cool. To, how you want them to lay? You know, and and that's how that's how, that's how the songs were constructed." Okay, that's cool. So I, I I didn't realize that your room is big enough there to do like full band stuff. So so it's uh, you've got yeah. everybody over, cranked over, up in there. Over, that's great. Over, over to my right over here, the, the drum kit is set up against the wall. Yeah. And to 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 his right, my keyboard is, is sitting is sitting there, and then I have a I have a second keyboard um, um, rig that's just by itself. It's just a grand, it's just a piano grand sounds, and, and then then where I'm sitting right here is usually where I'm at. You know, right in front of the console playing my bass. Okay. But yeah. So bass wise, tell me a little bit about um, like maybe we can use the the actual bass as a way to kind of travel back in time a little bit. But as as of right now, like currently, what do you do? You still use like a just a straight up Fender Precision, or I think that was always your axe of choice, right back in the day. The P, the P bass was much uh, axe of choice for um, yeah. probably um, forty plus years. Um, um, I um, while on tour with Government Mule. Um, um, the other bass player that was on that tour, um, Greg Arzab, uh, had a, had a deal with, um, Lakeland and, uh, and I had, I had, I had my P bass on the road and, and, and I had bought this back. My backup bass was a, uh, was a no name bass. It, it was a warm, warm neck and a body that I had put, to, had put together. It was a, it was a good playing instrument. Sounded really wonderful, a wonderful sounding instrument. Um, but you know, Greg. You know, Greg said, "Man, Porter can't. We can't pull out here playing a bass with no name on it. You know, that's a, that's disgusting, <laughs> man. You know." And um, so he had called Dan Lakeland and uh, and and, and uh, told him we were when we got to Chicago. Dan showed up to the sound check with a bunch of basses, you know, and uh, and told me said pick one. So I picked I picked one, and actually the one I picked was this bass here that's behind me. I, I picked that one, and um, after after getting it, uh, I didn't like the neck, you know, because well, my my P neck has has worn down. It was really worn. And it really felt really good. This big this forty neck years, was, man. That's a- <laughs> this neck was like this neck was brand new, and you know, and it just didn't feel comfortable to me. So I I never really actually played it unless I had to, and um um, so you know that I eventually um got um. Dan called me up after it was a couple of years later, called me up and said, I'll make you a bass, you know, oh, I know what it was. I know what got that there. Um, <clears throat> there was a, um, was my 60th birthday. And uh, um, 
my manager, my then manager at the time, um, called Fender, and and he wanted to have a signature bass made for me. Yeah. And uh, 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 but Fender turned him turned him down. And uh, somebody somebody on we were on we were on. I guess this was the beginning of Facebook, maybe. Uh, uh, um, you know, we were talking about somebody said, "Man, if you had a signature bass, I would. You know, I would definitely buy it." You know. And uh, so I told him the story about Fender turning me down, and boy, Fender got trashed. <laughs> I bet, man. You know, and uh, um, so that's some bad PR right there. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that <laughs> that, that Dan, Dan was actually checking me out because he wasn't he wasn't listed as a friend. Uh, uh, so I got this message, uh, this personal message from Dan Laker, and saying that um, I'll make your base, send me, send me, send me your base, and I'll, you know, we'll we'll, we'll take it from there. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, man, but I'm not sending my base no way. Yeah. You know? I'm not sending this base to nobody, you know. Um, uh, um, but I I can I'll take it to someone down here to have the dimensions done, you know, and to send you the dimensions of the neck and everything. And I I did that and. He, um, you know, about, about six, eight months later, he sent me, uh, um, sent me the other bass. Well, that bass is downstairs. It's downstairs, but um, and I, I, you know, I that bass eventually play, replaced my P bass, oh, uh, um, okay. because you know at, at that point, well, two things about it that I, I really liked was that it was lighter than my P bass, and uh, uh, and it felt like my P bass because the neck. Was my so base. He, he just copied the next specs exactly. Exactly, and uh, uh, um, and so that's the way that's the way that base became a, became a thing. And then shortly after that, Dan left the company. He sold the company and, and, and walked away from it. That was that Lake, Lakeland was. You know, and it was a Bob Glob base. Basically, that's oh, what yeah. that that one is. Just Bob Glob, um, just a P base. Uh, 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 um, that um, that they just custom to my custom to my neck. Well, I t- I took the first the original P bass, um, the original Bob Glob that that Dan gave me, uh, and, and took that to the guys down here in New Orleans that um, that took the dimensions of my neck and had them redo this neck. So like this neck, this neck, and then I also gave them that no name bass. <laughs> yeah, I gave them the no name bass and said, "Man, make that bass like that too." You know. <laughs> So, so you're at I, it. I put my P bass neck on two other instruments. So then I, so then now I had you know three basses that felt like my P bass. Yeah, know, yeah, which was cool. So is is there a is there a George Porter signature bass now, like a Lakeland or anything? Not not yet. But Dan okay. Dan did when Dan started D Lakeland. He gave me a D Lakeland bass, his first line, uh, his first run on D Lakeland bass, which is very much. Uh, uh, he says it's a P bass, uh, um, but you know everybody I talk to says no, that's a jazz bass. Mm. And uh, uh, um, but Dan says it's, it was the original P bass. And uh, so I, you know, I never was into the technical parts of how those bases came or how they evolved. I just, I just played them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me about the first time that you got your original, like your, your P base, maybe like what year that was and where you got it and what it was about that instrument that like really worked for you and the way that you played? Well, it was 1970, uh, 1970. I bought, cause all before 1970, I was playing Gibson's. Oh uh, really? I, play, I played the EB. I had the, all of the EB series. series. Really? 
Uh, okay. um, and um, I had, like on the first meters record, that would be a Gibson. Those were Gibsons. Yes. Really? Uh, huh. and, and, until, um, until um, cabbage out there. Well, actually um, chicken strut. Uh, the, That's the, where you the, switched. Strutting was when um, we were in Atlanta, Georgia and um, at the LaFeva studio and, um, and the, uh, the, the son Marlon had, um, had a telecaster and it was in the wall, sitting up against the wall. And and my my EB three was kind of kind of like not in good shape anymore. Really? And uh, and uh, and it wasn't staying in tune. And um, so um, the uh, engineer said, "Why don't you pull that 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 telecaster out of the corner over there and see how that how that did. it ain't been it had spider webs on the thing. It, had, it probably ain't been used <laughs> in it forever." So I, I yanked it out of the cone and wiped it down and you know cleaned it up and plugged it up and uh, and tuned it up. It was a tele bass. A tele bass, yes. Yeah. And I still have that bass. Uh, 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 it, oh. it, it, it hasn't it hasn't left the house in well over twenty five years. It hasn't left my house since nineteen seventy six. Wow. Um, because I. I I had a dream that I lost it, I, I, and I and I went looking for it that morning, and I couldn't find it. And what had happened was that, and that, and I was still getting high back then. Um, mm. um, I and, and one of my cocaine blitz, I went, <laughs> I went outside. I opened the uh, uh, opened the door, the trunk of the car to put the uh, to put the bases in the trunk of the car, and. Um, Somebody came out of the club and opened the door, and the door opened all the way. Down. The other base was against the wall. Oh shit! And and the door covered the wall, so I looked behind and didn't see the base. So I figured Bradley had taken the base and put it in the truck. So I didn't worry about that. I just split because I was, you know, I, I had a date with some cocaine, and and and, uh, <laughs> and, and so um, I split and went to bed that night and woke up the next morning. And, and, and just had a dream that I left that base behind. I saw what had happened. You know, exactly I actually where saw, it was. Yeah. I knew exactly where it was. And oh, that's, that's, that's where it was. But Bradley and them, when they closed, when they locked up, when they was closing up the joint, the base came visible. And Brad, so Bradley did take the base home. And wow. uh, so, you know, it was like three. The third phone call was to Bradley. You know where that base is? And he said, yeah, I got it. <laughs> you left it on the wall <laughs> in, front of, in front of the club. You know, I said, oh, man. That was the last day that that base came out of the house until, you know, several times that I moved, the base came out of the house. But, you know, it was, uh, and I played on that base. Uh, um, uh, 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 some fans uh, 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 was questioning on Facebook a few months ago um, about, how many instruments, how many bass guitars I have. And I said, I don't know. That's a good question. I know there's, there's some out in the country and there's a few here in the city. Okay. I'm going to do what I'm going to go. I'm going to go out. I'm going to take this day, uh, go out to the country tomorrow. And we're going to go look up and see what we got. So I went out there and pull out. There was five bases out there and the telecaster was one of them. And so okay. I, I plugged them up and I played, I played all five of those bases, you know, and just introduced those bases to everyone. Yeah. And uh, and and then um, and and then came you know came back to the house and did the did the same thing here in New Orleans you know. So your your recording base originally was the EB the Gibson and then the telly that was just hanging on the guy's wall became that became your main instrument for a while. That that bass that bass recorded uh, recorded um, 
um, Strutton, the Strutton yep. L, um, LP, and the Cabbage Alley LP. Wow, amazing. So, you know, I'm thinking as, it was, must have been 1971, I wanted a, 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 um, a fretless bass. So I went bought the Precision fretless bass. And that bass was, it was, I bought it in 71, but it was a, 19, it was a 1970 Precision fretless bass. Okay. And uh, I bought it and made the, the, made the, uh, the mistake uh, of, of taking it on the road and leaving the telly at home. And, and we were out for a couple of months with the meters and, and, uh, and all I was doing was slipping and sliding up that deck. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What and made it, you want to get into the fretless thing all of a sudden? Uh, you know, I think somebody, you know, yeah, I think it was had, had to, to, um, something to do with probably Jocko. I'm not sure. Cause I don't right. play like Jocko, but the, it was a sound that he had, you know, that, that uh, uh, you know, Zig and or Leo both was you know saying, "Boy, that's that's a great sound." You know, but, uh, <laughs> you gotta get that. Yeah, yeah. So, thing. You, know, <laughs> you know, and uh, um, so it was, and I went to several uh, several cases with both Zig and Leo where, you know, they they wanted me to to sound sound like uh, get the sound that that bass players getting. You know, uh, one was the Johnson brother. You know, they wanted me to get to get oh, yeah. his bass sound. I never knew what instrument he played or anything. And I just told them they go screw themselves. <laughs> I said, I'm not, you know, if you want you want that sound, hire him. <laughs> you know. You got the George Porter sound right here. You know, so yeah, <laughs> that was so we kinda we kinda they kinda left that alone. But but twice there was it was Jocko and it was the Johnson brother. Um I don't I don't I don't, I don't even remember the kid's name. Uh, um um, but yeah, <laughs> but uh, so did you? Did you end up putting frets onto that bass, or did you just get no, a new bass? No, I got I got a neck. Uh, a, a music store here in New Orleans, uh, uh, rock and roll music. Uh, um, they, uh, they, the owner had uh, 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 an instrument that had the, the neck. The body had been cut, and just, oh, okay. they were just trying to sell the neck. And I bought the neck for fifty dollars, uh, and it and was it was a precision. It was a precision neck, yeah. That yeah. Uh, uh, it was a precision base, and I just took they took the neck off, and I bought the neck for fifty dollars, and that that neck got on put got put onto my fretless base in nineteen seventy one, and that's that became the base that that became that the that came the base from for the for, for, uh, up until the, um, the Lakelands came along. That's cool. That's a great that's a great history, and I didn't know that you played Gibsons. Or, or- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Originally, you know, you mentioned some of those early recordings. And and, um, I wonder if you could just talk for a minute about like coming as a bass player, the concept of a, of a rhythm section and how, you know, you've played with some great drummers over the years, obviously, and your relationship with, with Zigaboo and those early years must've been pretty intense. Um, can you maybe just talk about how, and, and also Russell Batiste, you know, like in more recent years, and there's probably a bunch of other drummers that you've loved playing with, but, um, 
Could you just maybe talk a little bit about that concept as a whole, like finding the right people and, and gelling as a rhythm section, how that's happened to you and who your favorite players have been to play with in that sense? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I've been very fortunate to, um, to actually been um, playing with probably the, uh, the high-end um, New Orleans drummers. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, by all means, um, you know, f- um, starting starting all the way back is with uh, um, with with Zigaboo as a, but before before Zigaboo there was there was a a, a, a young man named uh, um, Albert Brown no not Albert Brown what about Albert now Albert Smith okay and and he was a singer that played drums and he had he had you know and, and, and it was a cover a serious cover band back in there but. He has had. He had a. He was a very solid, solid drummer. You know, um, yeah. nothing, nothing fancy. You know, and, and, but he was just solid. You know. Then at that time, I was a guitar player, not a bass player. I was a guitar player. Oh, okay. You know, but 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 being a being aware of of, of how drums related to bass. Yep. You know, because I, you know, actually, I was playing guitar, but I I was also a, I knew how to play bass too at the time. You know, uh, uh, you know, so I, you know, I had, I just developed that idea that when, um, when the bass and drums are playing together off of each other, that everything else in the band, you know, just can do anything. It can gel, you know, because <laughs> yeah. bass and drums is so, so that probably was the thing it's that. the foundation. Yeah, that, that's what probably, you know, drew me to wanting to be more predominantly a bass player. But it was basically really the the, uh, the uh, Vietnam conflict that happened, um, the draft uh, um, that that pretty much got me to playing bass more, more, and more because uh, I was, you know, a lot of the younger players were getting drafted, and I I had I I, I had a, uh, I couldn't touch my toes. I was told that I had a crooked spine. Oh. And and that um, that I could you know I was drafted I was brought down to, to be drafted and it's the only reason why I didn't go to to the to the, um, to the military uh, because I couldn't touch my toes. Wow! And, um, and 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 because it wasn't a war, it wasn't on paper as a war, then you know my injury kept me home. You know, wow. but if, if it have, if it had been a war, whatever it takes, man. Yeah, <laughs> if it had been a, if it had been a war, I would have been overseas. Um, wow, that's crazy. But uh, um, so then so at, there was like a lack of bass players around New Orleans at the there time. There was a, a lack of electric bass players. Yes. Wow. So we're talking like '67, '68 uh, here. No, I'm talking earlier than that. Um, okay. Just can't put I can't put my finger on. I my numbers on my years is all screwed up. I was playing bass with Irvin ba- Irvin ba- uh, Irvin Bannister, who just recently passed away. In fact, I was playing bass with him. It must have been around sixty-three, sixty-four, maybe. Wow. Okay. Uh, just around New Orleans, or were you touring with him? <laughs> no, just in New Orleans. We was just. I was just. I was local. I was. I was. I was uh, the first band to take me out of, out of the city. Uh, well, I mean, out of Louisiana, let's put it that way. Because I, I, I with, with Herbert Wings Band, the Taste of New Orleans, uh, I when Papi couldn't go on those little runs to Baton Rouge to play on the fraternity houses up in Baton Rouge with, with Earl King and, uh, or Benny yeah. Spellman, one of those guys. 
I would I would go up and I would be the bass player on Herbert Spring. And all of that probably could have happened in 64, 65. Uh, um, and and, and um, when we started at the nightcap, as um, when Art Neville saw me playing with Urban's band, that was after right after the Tell It Like It Is, uh, Aaron had been out on the road with Tell It, supporting Tell It Like It Is. And that's the only way I can tell. I, I don't know what year that was. I can just say that I, it happened after Tell It Like It Is. So whenever, whatever year Tell It Like It Is was the, the big hit for Aaron. Yeah, it's probably around 64, 65. 65, right? yeah, somewhere yeah. in that neighborhood. Uh, um, that I, um, that Art came home and saw me playing bass with Irvin Bannister and and, okay. and, and said, "Hey, man, that's the instrument you should have been playing." Because the very first time I played, <laughs> I played with Art. I was a guitar you were player, guitar. And, okay. and 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 he hated it. He hated. It. He told me on the way. He told me on the way home that you know when he dropped me off at home, he said, "Man, you're the worst guitar player I ever." <laughs> you know, Thanks, I, I, I didn't play. I didn't play solos. I was just. I was a rhythm guitar player. I didn't. He was. He wasn't. And he wasn't a soloist on piano. He just played chords to, to back up uh -huh. his vocals. So when every time was a solo come up, he would look at me and I said, ah. <laughs> "Can you give me a taste of what the live music scene in New Orleans in the mid '60s was like? Like, was it was it focused around Bourbon Street?" Like was Bourbon Street was kind of happening and cool back then, right? Like it wasn't a, a weird party scene like it is now. Oh uh, yeah, well Bourbon Street was every club on Bourbon Street back then had a band, had a live band, usually yeah. three bands. They, they, you know, throughout wow. the day, throughout the course of the day, three bands would play instead of like now they have one guy, one band that pretty much play from one o'clock in the daytime until, you know, until they tell him he can go home at, at night, you know? So, yeah. It, um, but no, th there were other clubs in the city, the uh, 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 smaller black clubs that, that mm -hmm. the music scene that, you know, that I, that I was part of uh, um, clubs. Like, what, uh, what, what were some of the main ones? Well, the band was eight, the 808 uh, uh, club 77. Um, there was, um, I think there was, uh, well, that was much later. Um, Lou and Charlie's camp, much later. But it was kind of based off of those old original clubs. There was, uh, oh, oh, the um, the GGTO club. That's where that's mm -hmm. where Art saw me playing with um, with Irvin at the GTO. But I I started playing in in, in those little clubs because what you know before with Ir with with um, with with Herbert's band. We were playing fraternity houses. We weren't playing nightclubs. It was we, Herbert had oh. every weekend. He was on he was on Broadway, playing, uh, uh, you know, one of those frat houses the whole weekend. He would play one 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 night one night and two blocks down the next night. You know, that's where the gigs were. Was the frat houses? That's, that's where the gigs was. Uh, um, and 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 then we when we weren't on, on on Broadway in New Orleans, we would go up to LSU in Baton Rouge. Um, okay. Uh, so the 808 uh, was an uptown club that was the club 77 was a downtown or was a downtown club and the GTO was kind of like in the middle between the two you know between between uptown and downtown which you know okay. is, I'm talk I'm talking about you know probably 10 to 12 miles apart the difference between yeah. the 808 and the club 77 and then the, the GTO was like right in the middle you know and and like Tipitinas and Maple Leaf and those places were not around at that point. Uh, I did. I was unaware of the Maple Leaf Club at the time. Tipitinas, Tipitinas was. Uh, it wasn't Tipitinas then. Back then, it was. Uh, it was called the Five Hundred One, and it was. It, it was there, but it was a, a, a not a biker club, but it was like you know, uh, um, 
um, the good old boys club, you know, they, they, okay. they, they used to throw beer bottles at the black guys that, you know, we come over really? there, buy, buy drinks and, 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 and a little window, you know, but you can go buy your, uh, buy a quarter beer in the window. Yeah. And you know, you, when you're crossing a neutral down, going home, somebody threw a beer bottle at you, you know, uh, from the man. club. <laughs> what happens? That was, that was, that was the way it was back then. So, so a lot of guys, a lot of guys learn how to run really well from that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> when was the first time that you got together with with Zigaboo and and Art and Leo? Like when when did the Meters actually become a band? Was that sixty five or sixty six? That was sixty six. I want to say you know uh, uh, I had to be Leo said it, the other day in the interview I heard Leo say it was sixty five, but we started playing at the at the club called the Nightcap. Uh, um, and that was again. That was like in the middle between between uh, um, uptown and downtown. It's right in the middle. And um, there were, you know, and I, I can't think of. A, I can't, you know, know the names of them. But there were jazz clubs back in in, in the sixties in New Orleans. That was, you know, that I wasn't a part of that that neighborhood because I didn't play. I wasn't considering myself a jazz musician, and um, so I didn't go to those clubs. But uh, um, the nightcap um, was was going to be uh, an R and B night spot, and uh, and and and, a, and a popular music at the time, popular R and B music. Art got that gig. Um, Leo and I think Leo and the saxophone player was in the band. It was Sam Henry's band. That uh, when Art got there, Art sat in one night with them. Uh, on 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 Sam Harris B three, mm-hmm. and uh, and basically the club owner, you know, pretty much gave Art the gig, you know, Art really? went there and, and hijacked Sam's band. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, That's the way to do it. Yeah, and uh, and, and 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 hijacked the band, kept Leo Nocentelli, kept yeah. Gary Brown the saxophone player, and um, and hired a drummer named Glenn. Uh, played drums and, uh, and and brought me in on bass, and, um, and we played like that for a, f- a few months. And then Glenn, Glenn had to go off to have a minor surgery, and for the two weeks he was gone, um, Art recruited Zigaboo from um, from the Deacon Johns band. Well, at that point, at at that point, Deacon Johns was uh, uh, he was kind of moving. Uh, uh, away from the strict R and B big horn band thing to um, to uh, uh, um, um, to a rock kind of Jimi Hendrix you know Led Zeppelin you know band he was okay. he was, he he started playing metal and you know he got big amplifiers yeah. and stuff he Deke was probably one of the first black rock bands in New Orleans you know uh, 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 and it's, it was Zig was in that band. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, Zig was in the band that was transitioning. Uh, I don't think Zig played the rock part of the gig yet, but you know maybe some of the Jimi Hendrix stuff, but not the rock part. Uh, um, Zig came in when Glenn came back to uh, that Sunday. Two weeks later, he came in on a Sunday, and we were playing. Joint was packed, and he and he heard Zigaboo playing his drums. And he he turned to the club owner and told him, "Say, man, I don't think I'm gonna get this gig back." <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, 
the next day, man, he came with removed his drums, and and we, I'd never never seen him again. I, I, Holy I, shit! And wow. I and I never, you know, I I can't never remember his last name, you know. So wow, but he was a wonderful drummer. I I, I enjoyed playing with him for that, you know, for five six months, you know, that that he was on that gig. He was a he was a he was a good drummer. And and so when Zigaboo came and sat in and that happened, like was it was it did it gel really quickly? Like did you guys well, lock yeah. in and just like it was, oh, it was immediate? It was immediate. Zig Zig had Zig had a a a a a, a feel that none of us had played with before. You know, tell me and, about that. And it, it was it was um, you know it was just a uh, it was a pocket that he that that it was his. It was Zigaboo. You know, he came. He came from the street. He knew how to play that that street parade stuff. You know, he knew what that was about. But you know, he 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 inter- he he incorporated that with you know the other styles of music that he that he had um, ingested. Yeah. And you know, he came up with a way of playing all this stuff that was just totally new. Uh, right. I mean, I don't I don't know how to explain it. Uh, I you know I I would. I would I would say I would love to see it written down, but I don't think nobody can write that. <laughs> it's true, man. You know, like he's one of those players that, and you are too. I think where where people like hear what you do and they love it and they kind of copy it, but but often just get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. And he's one of those guys. Like everyone plays, you know, Sissy Strut or whatever. Like there's a lot of people that play that those songs, but they don't. They never really play them right. Oh yeah, well you know I think one of the biggest problems that most drummers had with with playing that Sissy Strut was they did the hi hat section with one hand, right? And and Zig played that with two hands. You know, it was a two handed yeah. thing. And uh, uh, fluid, and uh, and and that you know that was just the difference of how that how that accent for doing it with one hand, you know. Yeah. Now it probably you know the guys who got it right probably made them better drummers just because they were able to do something with one with one hand, you know, gave them a better wrist, you know. But you know it was it was like most of the times it was played wrong. You know, if you guys got together around 66, your first record, as far as I know, came out in 69. Was it just like a couple of years where you guys were hardcore playing gigs like night after night in oh, yeah, frat yeah. houses? And <laughs> no, no, and no. The, that band, before it became the Meters, we played the nightcap nightclub. And uh, after a couple of years of doing that, we, uh, we went on Bourbon Street and we played Bourbon Street mm-hmm. for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, um, and what were you playing? Like, what was the material you guys were playing? We were, we were, playing, every, we were playing everything from Curtis Mayfield. We played everything from Earl King to uh, yeah. to Fats Domino to uh, um, the, the Five Steps, not the Five Steps, Steps Up, Up, the, the group that did Up, Up and Away. I can't remember. Uh, up and Away. Yeah, there was. There was yeah, there I was, know the song. Yeah. They, um, they, you know, um, West Montgomery stuff. We were, we were, we were playing, we were, we were just playing, we were playing music. We were, we were a bona fide cover band. And it was the fact that we had been putting in so much time together as a rhythm section. It, it, you know, it's, you know, when we, we started doing those sessions with Alan Toussaint, mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, you know, and, 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 you know, we, we got refined even more so because Alan taught taught me more than anybody, I think, uh, uh, about my bass lines having more space. 
I was pretty locked into his left hand almost on all of those uh, Lee Dorsey records. Almost any record that we played with Alan, uh, my my left hand, my bass line was in his left hand. And, uh, you know, so I, I learned I learned uh, uh, about that part about what not to play versus yeah. but what to play, you know. Did Alan see you guys down like at a gig on Bourbon Street and say like I want you guys to come in and be like because had been seeing us from the nightcap. He, okay. he, he he used to visit the nightcap and see us. And then when we went on Bourbon Street, uh, the doorman at uh, uh, when we would go on a break, he would tell him, "See your your boy in the Cadillac was outside." <laughs> <laughs> so did he just start, start inviting you guys down to play sessions for him as a producer? Is that his his ma- his manager called us um call art up. Uh, um, because I believe Art had worked with Alan in, in the okay. previous years. Uh, also, Leo had worked with Alan uh, in, in, in yeah. his younger days. Um, you know, he called uh, Marshall called um, uh, Art and said, um, "Alan would like to see you guys uh, come in to do an audition." You know, okay. and, uh, we went into audition uh, to play some music. Uh, it was uh, uh, eventually that music turned into being the Lee Dorsey record. Okay, and um, and that's how you know that's how we we became Alan Two Cents House Band. What was your relationship with him? He was probably a little older than you guys, and and did he really was he really hands on? Like you mentioned that he kind of taught you about space and and what are some of the other things that he that you learned from him, like as a producer and as a music person? Well, uh, you know, as a he was hands on on anything that he was writing for other artists and the artists yeah. that uh, he was not hands on in the meters catalog. He, oh. he he you know he left he left the meters to the to the meters. He never you know it, eventually it was it was how it went down was it was an Alan two cent Alan two cent session. We didn't always know who the artist was going to be because we would just go in record the tracks with Alan. You know, talking. Oh, without the artist there. Yeah, without the artist there. Oh, and, uh, okay. and and uh, and then later the record come out with somebody on it. You know, yeah. uh, um, but it was after the after one of those sessions at Cosmos Matassa Studio, uh, yeah. uh, um, that um, Jazz City, I believe the name of that studio was, um, that um, Marshall Seahorn walked into the into the room. And, uh, and and told us to say, uh, so Alan is finished for the day. Why don't y'all play something? You know, why don't y'all, why don't y'all lay down a couple of tracks, you know, do something. So that's what, how, how it went down. So had you guys worked out some instrumentals and stuff as as the meters already, or was it just strictly like... It, it, happened, it happened right there in the studio. Well, wow. Sophisticated Sissy was sort of like a, a, a pocket that we played as a break song uh, at, at the, at okay. the, at the uh, Ivanhoe. One, two minutes while Art will say, yeah, 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 blah, 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 And we'll take a short part for where the cause and we'll end the song. <laughs> so, so that's, that's, uh, um, that's what, what that group. Uh, we, in, the, in the studio that day, Leo put that intro, he put that intro, that little intro on the song. He uh, also came up with that lick, the Sissy Strut lick, uh, um, and um, then I think the other the, the other two songs. One was um, was basically a Turkey and the Straw. Really? <laughs> Sion's <laughs> form was basically Turkey and the Straw, um, yeah. 
And here come the meter man. I think that was Zig's um, Zig's pocket. Zig set up a groove and we just started playing. You know, and pretty much the next two albums, I mean, with an album that was Sissy Struts album and the Look of Pie Pie album was pretty much yeah. we go in with some licks, somebody bring in the lick and we make a song from it. Was there any discussion among you guys about like how that how it would evolve as a sound? Because like it's a very strong concept. The meters were like very melodic and very groove based, but it wasn't like you just played the song and then a wild jam broke out. It was like very restrained and very funky, but in a in a restrained, interesting kind of way. Like, did you guys figure that out at all or was it just you just played and just let it happen well i, I kind of remember little parts about about how you know one of the things was that almost all of those songs were all under three minutes long yeah and 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 so you know they were they they, they if there was a solo it only happened one time right you know yeah, one yeah. pass at it and and and, and you know and so, you know, it, it, there was, you know, it was basically about that lick and that groove. Leo was, you know, used to always say that in everything from the second album on, the instrumentals were, uh, was beds looking for heads. Okay. You know, uh, um, that's the reason why there was so many, uh, um, so many meter songs that was the hip hop community picked up on because they were, you know, there was a, there was, it was a rhythm track looking for something to go on top of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 a lot of those songs lean lean to that, you know. Um, so no, the, the answer to your question, not really, not really. I don't think there was a a, a, a designated, um, concentrated uh, effort to go in and do this. It was just right. things that happen. It is things that happen. We start playing, you know. And so, like I said, somebody would come up with a lick. Most of the times it was Leo. He would come up with a lick, and we just we would just build on it. And and you know, and usually Marshall would kind of say, "Okay, stop." You know, so we might take two takes at at, at some of them songs. We'd say, "Okay, well, yeah, that's ended there," or something like that. Or they would fade it. You know. And was it always done at at that um, at Cosmo's studio? The um, the very first one was done at Kyle's studio. Uh, okay. The second two were done in uh, in, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, at the Lefebvre Studio. So, uh, um, "Look at Pie Pie," and and uh, and "Strutting" was recorded in Atlanta, Georgia. Why didn't you do those in New Orleans? We had didn't have a studio there yet. Cosmo had studio closed. Marshall Marshall and uh, Allen was in the process of building a studio. Uh, uh, hadn't gotten, hadn't got. It was in the plans and the money was being put together, but uh, um, they wanted to move, and Alan wanted to move to a multi-track studio. See, Kai's studio wasn't multi-track. Uh, 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 it was, it was, it was, well, it was multi-track per se, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, where we had a mixing desk. And, you couldn't and, overdub, and, really. You couldn't, couldn't, couldn't overdub to, to like, the, the real world. They had those capabilities, but, but it was done old school. Like, you run the tape and just run a new machine and run it, right. all the sounds over, yes. Um, <clears throat> so Alan wanted to start using multi-track stuff because they were getting, he was getting, you know, people were he calling, was getting, he was getting yeah. big work, you know, from, yeah. from record labels wanting him to produce their, their artists. So he had to move to a better studio. So we moved to the Lefebvre studio and, and, and we did um, 
the, the Lee Dorsey stuff there. We did some Betty Harris stuff there. We did, um, uh, um, I can't remember who what his name was there, but we got some work done there. But mostly, uh, uh, mostly Lee Dorsey and, um, and um, the meters. So when you did those early meters records, were you guys all in the same room, just like straight up playing together? Not much, uh, not much farther away from me all right now in this room. Yeah. And you weren't overdubbing anything. It was all just straight live off the floor, all that stuff. Yes. Yes. I know like you guys had a lot of success with that first record. It kind of happened right away and it was kind of an unusual thing because I mean, really the only other band doing anything like you would have been like Booker T and the MGs yes, up, you know, yes. up in Memphis. Right. Um, but did you guys start touring all over the States and we, we right started, away? We started touring almost, almost immediately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. After the, the song was released and, um, Marshall uh, came in and called uh, called us. Uh, it was sophisticated sissy. Yeah. And um and 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 Marshall called us into the office and and had, had handed a big check for each one of us, a, a <laughs> yes. check a, a check for twenty thousand dollars. He gave us twenty thousand wow. dollars each. And 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 that's he, a lot of money back then. And, and he handed us a contract about that thick. And and, uh, and and say you don't have to read it, you know. It's just it's, it's everything in there to protect you guys, you know, and everything. And uh, uh, we and we you know sign sign on the last page, and um, you know, and you get to keep that check, you know. And you know, first of all, I ain't never seen twenty thousand dollars, and you know, I never seen a piece of paper with twenty thousand dollars wrote on it that had my name on it. Let's put it that way. And uh, I signed. I didn't have. I didn't have any, any qualms on signing. He was counting on on you. Have never seen that much money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So did you guys? Did you guys kind of get ripped off then? Like I don't know the. Oh yeah, we got. Uh, we got. We law. We signed our publishing over. Uh, oh, we, we we didn't sign. Uh, uh, apparently, we did not sign our copyrights. So okay. uh, we 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 owned all our songs, but we signed over the publishing. Wow, and, uh, uh, and and the masters, yeah. So uh, which was like you know which like and today is you know it's the first things you want to sign want to keep is publishing and masters, right. you know. Yeah, of course, yeah. So yeah, we 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 kind of got screwed on that and, and and that and that in that sense, you know. And and it was it, it took almost thirty years before we 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 actually got got our copyright got our copyrights right uh, got our, wow. our our publishing right and we really didn't get our publishing back we our publishing just went to a company that will that started paying us <laughs> okay so what was the touring situation like back in those days like were you guys slogging it out in vans and stuff or like was it uh, like how how well were you doing across the country? Uh, in a Volkswagen, not a Volkswagen, but uh, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a Mercury station wagon with a little trailer on the back. Yeah, wow, and, you know, this, and we yeah. and we um, we we did we did the chitlin circuit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did the band take to touring well, or was it bad for you guys, or like how did you guys fare? I, you know, I think that we fared pretty good. I um, mean, you know, uh -huh. there were there there. I don't remember um, gripes uh, or you know anybody bitching about being out. You know, uh, whenever you say we was going home, everybody was happy about that. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, we was we were out, we were playing, uh, uh, we were playing, uh, and and we were we you know for the time at that time we were making our, our fairly decent money. You know, uh, um, 
we were we were getting more money on a nightly basis than we were getting playing on a nightly basis at home. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. So everybody was okay with that. And were, were you keeping your studio work up when you got home, or did that kind of reach the point where you would be gone and then people would sort of forget about you in New Orleans? Or? No, uh, uh, what it was how that worked. Marshall had Marshall controlled our whole thing. He he okay. he um. When we, when Alan, when we weren't needed in the studio for Alan, he had us on the road. Yeah. And, and, and he was, and he was, him and, and, and the, the booking agency at the time was a uh, Phil Walden. Uh, um, oh, okay. Uh, the um, Capricorn guy. Capricorn guy. Uh, um, he would, um, he would bring us home. He would just call up and say, uh, I need him home, you know, um, this next three weeks, you know, and we would come yeah. home for those three weeks and, uh, and be in the studio. Uh, uh, we may get a couple of little gigs around town, but for the most part, we weren't working when we was at home. We would be in the studio. Okay. I mean, the the meter sort of lasted through the 80s and stuff. Like, at what point did you guys actually call it quits? The meters didn't make it through the 80s. Uh, the, Art left the band in, in 79. Oh, it was 79. Okay, yeah. Uh, he left the band in 79, started his Neville Brothers um, project. Um, yeah. I left the band and led late the lack the late part of 79. Uh, um, we did a reunion in 1980 uh, um, that featured um, four bands. Um, Zig had a band called Gaboon's Gang mm-hmm. uh, and had, has, has started recording with that band. And, and um, the only person that didn't have a band was Leo. I had a band called Joyride that I had started recording with. Oh, yeah. And Art had the Neville Brothers. So each one those bands played and then the uh, the original meters played together uh, as a band then we talk about at that time it was the original bands and I think we bought Aaron Neville out as a singer I believe Cyril was on that gig too I believe Cyril was on that gig and we had background singers and uh, I believe they had a horn section I, I kind of believe that 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 videos footage camp surfaced for a few minutes a couple of years ago um Oh, the, cool. Foo, the, 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 the Foo Fighters guy did a uh, did a piece where where they, he used some footage from that concert um, in in uh, well in his New Orleans um, part of that. Oh, in the Sound City show yeah, or whatever yeah. that was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In 1980, that was, and then I think at that from from that from that after that show, the meters kind of disappeared. You know, as a group called the meters, you know, it just yeah. went away. Everybody pretty much did his thing. I was doing my, I, I kind of um, kind of left um, um, Joyride, did nothing for a few years, and then was mm-hmm. playing playing music on the street with David Lassie and his family. And uh, wow. playing jazz, uh, playing you know um, bebop and New Orleans traditional jazz. Yeah. What else has the future got in store for you? Like, assuming that all this stuff kind of clears up and that we can go back to working at some point as musicians, uh, are you gonna like? Do you enjoy leading your own band more than anything else, or do you still do any sideman gigs or uh, sessions for other people, or like, what else are you up to? Uh, I'm doing. I'm doing a little of all of that. Yes. Uh, yeah. um, I. Um, I, I I very much uh, I, I get a lot of work, you know, as a solo artist with other uh, with other groups, um, you know, guest a guest artist or guest appearance, or uh, the bass player, you know, like Warren Hans has called me several times, and I'm just the bass player in that organization that he does um, when when he does that project. Um, Steve Kimock calls me uh, a lot the, the Voodoo Dead project. 
Uh, I have I kind of moved up in that in the organization uh, um, when we go overseas to Japan uh, or stuff like that. I'm the front singer uh, in, in that band. Oh, cool! Uh, 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 in New Orleans, when they, when we do the shows here in New Orleans and doing jazz fest, um, I'm myself and and we switch off between Jackie Green and Lebo. Mm-hmm. As as the lead singers, um, one is one or the others. Whoever's not there, the other one is there. Uh, and, and then we've been using another guy. Uh, I can't think of his name. Yeah, forget him. But uh, it's this it's like three lead singers that Kimak uses, and mostly the guys that kind of that kind of have a, a a handle on this Grateful Dead um, um, right. catalog. Then um, uh, I um, I've done I've done three or four bass solo not solos but both bass overdubs where people send me their files and I do the work here in the house and I do my bass lines and send it back to them and get yep. paid and, and that was that's a nice income I and, you know that's for sure. you know for you know thirty five forty minutes work you know yeah man for future I I I'm looking really looking forward to getting back into work. But only when it's when it's really safe. Before I call yeah. myself wants to be in in a in a room full of hundreds of people, you know, yeah. it's gonna be a what's while. What's happening with what's happening with Jazz Fest? Have they canceled it for this year, or are they? I think they're talking about later on in the year. Uh, oh, okay. So like October or something like that. That's what I heard. That's a rumor. I don't. You can't hold me to that one. Okay. Uh, but um. You know, uh, getting back out, I, you know, I, I had, I kind of said this at one of the gigs uh, a couple of weeks ago that I think I was going to take both bands out on the road at the time, at the same time, you know, to pull the trio and running partners, yeah. you know, and, and do like each night I do two sets, you know, one set would be running partners and the next set would be a uh, uh, trio and then alternate every, every night, every other night or so I'll switch cool. up. You know, and yeah. so you got both bands and I, and I keep everybody working, you know. Sure. And so and, and the whole idea, all, all it takes is just have one additional person on the road um, with, um, you know, that seems safe. I have I have a nice um, Ford van that's, you know, that was created, it was like designed after for one of the sprinters uh, yeah. that, you know, all, all my gear, uh, you know, we all of our gear packs into the back of this vehicle. And, uh, and and you know and the six captain chairs in the front and, you know and yeah. we and we travel really well. I and I, I I was different on my vehicle and then, then most of the vehicles you'll see out there is that I have four wheels on the back of my vehicle instead of instead of just the two wheels. But so the the, the rear end of uh, the rear end axle is more sturdy and uh, it can handle how to handle, handle the weight you know of the yeah, gear. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, what's your take on Jazz Fest? Uh, you know, like as somebody that's probably seen it from for the last 60 years or whatever it is, uh, you know, d- how it's evolved into the size that it is now. Like, does it feel still like a really vital and real part of your year or is it just like so out of control that it's um, I'm not talking about this year, but like in general, uh, just kind of like where it's gone? Well, you know, from an artist's point of view, uh, I, 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 I don't see it has evolved out of control. Uh, um, um, uh, if, if you're speaking from an audience point of view, mm-hmm. uh, the crowd is no more. It's not. It's not as comfortable as it used to be. Right. When 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 the the crowds weren't as big as they are. Yeah. I mean, the bigger the bigger the crowds get, 
uh, um, the more uncomfortable it would get, and uh, and, and naturally. But as a uh, as a musician, as an artist that plays the festival, that's played every one of them. I think I only missed two, uh, or maybe three, at the most. But um, but you know, I missed I missed two of them. Was canceled. It was canceled. And one, I was on the road with David Byrne, and I couldn't make it. I I don't see an artist being inconvenienced that all as far as how jazz fest is it's being how large is it doesn't how no matter how big it gets it seemingly the artists uh uh artists being the way the artist is handled yeah uh uh, uh and, and presented is uh it's, uh, it's, it's still a, it's still, a good it's thing. still a good thing you know and, and i speak i can speak from that point because i i was a stage manager out there for 15 years you know, I, oh yeah, I was a stage manager on the, on, on both of the big stages um, for 15 oh, years. Wow. Uh, so I, you know, I I knew how uh, how it was supposed to go and how it did go. You know, so right. Well, hey George, thank you so much for um, talking to me today, man. I really appreciate it and love hearing the the stories. And you know, you've just contributed so much to to music that I, I love hearing all this stuff and and thank you for taking the time oh thank you for having me and all right don't forget look out for crying for hope it's out there yeah man looking forward to everything else you do and uh, hope to see you out in the live music world one of these days again take care bye-bye that was my conversation with george porter jr hope you enjoyed it i had a blast talking to him and he has a new record out crying for hope go check it out and we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Mm-hmm.